I'm Dr. Future, your host. I invite you to join me as together we experience a future quake. 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 Welcome to the Future Quake Show. I'm Dr. Future. And I'm Tom, the lightweight in the coming discussion bionic. Oh, that's not true. Although it's good to have you back, Tom, yeah, back here. into Music City here. Uh-huh. Um, went out on the on the uh, West Coast to see the Bionic family yeah, for the holidays. The Bionotronics. We had some we had some good times. We went shooting. That's becoming a real family pastime. That's good. That's put, good. I put 800 rounds through a AR-15. Yeah. Well, it's nice that Not you did that as a Christmas tradition. Yeah. Uh, blasting stuff away, just like uh, I and uh, Paul from Texas did. Shooting right after his baptism. Yeah, yeah. So I think we understand the sacred, you and I. Peculiarly American yeah. way of sacratizing the, yeah. the eminaton. Well, now that people have lost their respect for us, it's time that we have a respectable person on. Yep. And so we're going to introduce our guest this week. Uh, his name is Thomas Fusco. He's the author of a book called Behind the Cosmic Veil, A New Vision of Reality Merging Science, the Spiritual, and the Supernatural. And our theory, or excuse me, our theme this week is a new theory uniting the physical, spiritual, and paranormal. And it's one that uh, will cause you scratching your head, even in just the small portion of it that we cover in our interview. And so no further ado, here is Thomas Fusco of Behind the Cosmic Veil, and we'll be back to wrap it up here at Future Quake. Welcome to the Future Quake Show. I'm Dr. Future. And I'm Thomas Slightly under the weatherous bionicus. Yeah, sounds like it. I got the funk. I feel good. I just, it's kind of, you know, I've got the radio funk. And you've picked up this uh, desire to speak everything in Latin terms. I don't know where where that comes from, but it's good to have you here, brother. Call me Maximum Longinus. (laughs) Naminus. Long Naminus. Yeah. Uh, Well, I'll tell you what, it was worth your flight from the uh, West Coast to get back here in time for for a uh, Futurian of our show, who has written a book that I am sure has been a long, long time in the making uh, because of just the the sheer gravity of the information. We have with us uh, Thomas Fusco, who is the author of a new book called Behind the Cosmic Veil, A New Vision of Reality Merging Science, the Spiritual, and the Supernatural. And the theme of our show this week is A New Theory Uniting the Physical, Spiritual, and Paranormal. Uh, obviously a very, very light topic, uh, one, one of these easy things to uh, bite off, you know, and solve. So I'm going to ask all our listeners to sort of put your thinking hat on, keep an open mind, uh, like we ask you for many of our listeners on Future Quake, and just be open to, uh, to learn and ponder this week. And Mr. Fusco, I just want to thank you so much for joining us on the Future Quake show. Well, thank you very much for having me. Well, it's, it's, it's wonderful to have you. Um, and I really appreciate you contacting me and letting me know that uh, uh, someone, obviously, of your intellect, I think anyone who uh, will review your work and probably just hearing you speak tonight will understand you're, you're a person of tremendous intellect, and it's an honor that uh, you actually listen to the Future Quake show. Um, but to let us know that you had a new book out that um, you, you had uh, considered us to consider for discussion. And I tell you, I, I have to tell you, this was one heavy-duty read. Uh, we have had we've had a number of books that have really challenged us and pushed us out of our box in many ways, but this was one that uh, I, it was not a breezy read. I will tell you that 
but uh, it was a fascinating read nevertheless. So I just want to ask you, since we're just sort of uh, visiting with our first visit with you, could you tell us just a little bit about yourself for our listeners and your background, including a little bit about your uh, your spiritual background and some of your convictions and, and things about that? Well, I, I have quite a diverse background, as you can imagine, because, the, uh, as you know, the book covers so many different uh, areas of consideration. Uh, I've always considered myself an independent researcher, uh, because most of my work has been done out of the box, as you might say. Um, and uh, as far as my uh, uh, religious convictions, I am a Christian, mm-hmm. and my fundamental uh, view, uh, which relates to my book, is that uh, God created a universe uh, of a certain nature, and uh, God being a God of laws, that he made that universe according to certain uh, specific laws that, that he foreordained and laid down, and that uh, everything that we observe in the physical universe has to be in accordance with those laws. And so it was an effort uh, to try to ascertain uh, a much deeper understanding uh, than science alone can give us as to what those laws might actually be. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, what what actually led you to begin to write this very audacious project, uh, the book The Cosmic Veil, which, which, as I understand it, purports to be really a revelation of a theory which can unite the worlds of physics, the spiritual, and the paranormal. I know many people have tried to do at least parts of that and have found it a daunting task. And you've sort of put your arms around all of the big issues, particularly the things like we talk here on Future Quake. Um, and, and I want to remind our new listeners here that listen to this, uh, Future Quake, uh, we often tell people it's really an educational show uh, from a Christian perspective as opposed to a teaching show because we're, we're uh, our goal is to educate people on many, many different kinds of views and perspectives um, that can come from a, from a Christian worldview and understanding and, and provide an opportunity for you to find out how many different people think and to make your own kind of decisions on the information that you feel like is worthwhile for you to consider further. And I think this is going to be one of these uh, uh, shows where you're going to have a lot of interesting information to chew on uh, for that. But uh, get, getting back to this, uh, to your approach and, and uniting these areas, what made you decide to uh, to tackle this uh, big task? Well, I was always a very pragmatic and uh, scientifically minded individual, even at a young age. Um, to me, uh, something had to be a certain way um, that there couldn't be more than one way for a certain thing to be. And so uh, in my youth, uh, particularly in my teenage years and early 20s, I had several uh, remarkable experiences that uh, people today would call psychic. Not that I care for that word all that much because uh, it carries a lot of baggage with it. Yeah. Um, And sometimes we struggle with uh, terminologies in our language that... Uh, we use out of convenience, but we really don't have really good words to replace them with yet. But either way, these uh, these particular experiences uh, led me to a, a fundamental question: that how uh, how can these be 
possible? What kind of a universe would allow these things to be? And, of course, knowing that the, uh, the particular uh, scientific model that even we have today uh, doesn't uh, shed any light on these things at all, um, it, it occurred to me that, obviously, that model is not complete. And so I dedicated uh, much of the three decades to uh, come up with a model uh, which would not only accommodate uh, scientific observation, not necessarily scientific theory or conclusions, but scientific observations, as well as these uh, supernatural and paranormal observations, um, and come up with a single model that would accommodate them all together. Hmm. What did you hope uh, to accomplish with this book, because I, I know it was an incredible work to put it together. Was there anything sort of a an end point for the reader that that you wanted to accomplish? Well, I think that uh, my goal was the search for truth with a capital T. Yeah. Uh, that for me, that that was most important, and it was so important to my life that I had actually very early in my twenties had made a pledge to myself personally that I would gladly sacrifice the rest of my life if I could have one hour with that pure truth. Hmm. Well, uh, our folks today are lucky because they may get just a little more than an hour of that truth. So, uh, yeah, 90 minutes. The only, the only sacrifice we ask of them if they can tolerate listening to Tom and I. So I know that's a, <laughs> well, that's a just, big sacrifice. We'll just get but, out of the way. Yeah. You know. yeah. Um, uh, you, you mentioned in the book, uh, early in it, a description. And, you know, you alluded to something as far as psychic events, but there was a particular event that you talk about in some detail early in the book um, that really sort of stuck with you and was part of this impetus to do this. C- can you give us just a little bit of a, a capsule of what actually that was and, um, you know, what was the significance you thought of it? Well, I think you're speaking of the uh, incident that happened to me in high school. Yeah. Uh, I was a sophomore in high school. Uh, I had met a young lady, a freshman in high school, and uh, uh, I had known her for about a week. She had invited me over to her parents' house for lunch. It was very close to the school, so it was nothing to walk over there. And uh, while she was in the kitchen making sandwiches, I was looking around the parents' living room, and I was looking at some different art that they had hanging on the wall. I came to this one painting. And uh, suddenly I got a sharp pain in my left forearm. And when uh, the young lady came back into the room with the sandwiches, I asked her what seemed like a very natural question at the moment, but uh, one of those kinds of uh, events that when you stop and think about it later, you you start asking yourself, what in the world was that? Mm -hmm. But uh, I asked her, did the person who painted this ever injure their arm, their left arm? She just about turned white. And what her answer was, was that her older brother had actually painted it. And that during the time that he was working on this, he was working in the backyard with a chainsaw. And he actually injured himself pretty seriously with that chainsaw on his left forearm. Mm. And so when you start, uh, if you... Take the statistical probability of coming up with that kind of a 
a question, uh, any individual element within that question would still be unusual statistically, but when you add all those things together, for example, I didn't even know she had a brother, mm-hmm. uh, who would know that somebody would have a brother who would paint well enough to actually, you know, hang it on the wall. How many yeah. people have paintings hanging on their wall that, uh, that they actually know personally the individual painted it and so on and so forth. Uh, the statistical probability of this happening by chance, according to normal scientific mm-hmm. understanding, was way off the chart. And obviously that stuck with you later in your life, the fact that that was unexplained. It seemed like it was like a stone in your shoe, that uh, um, there wasn't any really good way to explain what you'd experienced. Mm-hmm. And Yeah, my, uh, you know, I know that some people that uh, have these kinds of experiences uh, may go off into that particular vein, and, and I'm sure some of them even get involved in occultism mm-hmm. uh, and those type of things. For me, there was never any kind of a, um, a thought of, well, gee, this is a great talent or this is something I should explore uh, in that regard. Uh, for me, it was a, a fundamental question. What kind of a universe would allow such a thing to be. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so for me, the the uh, motivation, that stone in my shoe, is, as you would, as you said, mm-hmm. was to find a model where this can be so. Mm-hmm. And you had to end up rolling your own, so to speak. Uh, and in fact, we, let's let's jump right into that now. Uh, you referred to it in your book as the TOE or theory of everything. And I know that's been used at various places. Sometimes it means different things to different people. But uh, you, you use this terminology as a way to marry what we have normally considered very, very separate areas, uh, physical, uh, physics uh, in the material world, the spiritual world, and the paranormal. Um, what, what do you actually mean by the theory of everything? And what do you feel is wrong with science's current approach to trying to find it? Generally speaking, uh, a TOE or a theory of everything is a set of principles or laws that uh, attempt to describe uh, everything in the universe, all observable phenomena, uh, all particles and their interactions. And, of course, uh, it's sort of the holy grail of physics. And uh, we're currently far from... um, coming up with with a a satisfactory answer for it. Um, For example, a lot of people have heard about string theory. Well, string theory is one of these attempts to come up with a theory of everything. Uh, uh, Einstein's unified field theory is also another theory in that direction. Uh, So uh, in that, what I've come up is what I call a conceptual theory. Uh, in other words, it doesn't have the mathematical equations and the formulas, but the theory is conceptual, more like uh, Einstein's thought experiments mm-hmm. that give us a mental image of uh, the processes and mechanisms involved in how physical reality emerges and how it can behave the way that we see it uh, behave. Would, would it be best described as a model? Yes, uh, you know, certainly a conceptual model. Mm-hmm. Now, a model can actually be something that really is 
the reality itself, or it can be a simplified abstraction that basically functions in a similar manner to reality. In other words, mathematics a lot of times will make a model of something, and they don't include all the fine details, but for the purposes of what we need it, it, it has the same kind of cause and effect, and it serves a useful purpose for, for modeling in that way. You know, even when they do aerodynamics or any kind of thing like that, they will use a model to basically get the kind of input-output of what, what we know reality is. Do, do you think what, what you've come up with is really the description of reality is or basically a model that conveniently allows us to sort of understand the, the generalities and basics of it in the way they interact with each other? Well, I think that all, all, everything in the universe and everything outside of the universe um, has an aspect to it which we would call today information. Uh-huh. Uh, in our computer age, uh, we've become quite aware of the significance of information, so much so, in fact, that the uh, old laws of conservation, uh, the idea that matter can neither be created nor destroyed, has been uh, extended in modern times to also include information, that information itself can neither be created nor destroyed. Mm-hmm. And so our human brains being intelligent uh, require a certain framework uh, built from information in which uh, we're able to understand and grasp the world outside of ourselves and, of course, within ourselves that is a reflection of that information. We can understand the uh, nature of a geometric object like a cube mm-hmm. in terms of mathematics. We can visualize it conceptually. We can understand the volume and space that it occupies. Uh, but ultimately, those things are only an accurate representation of the reality, which is the cube. And uh, so ultimately, it's like Einstein said, uh, mm-hmm. which many people are not familiar with this. He said the final test of any physical theory is human experience. Mm-hmm. And that itself, our perception of that experience is reality, and the theory itself is only a, a way to categorize it and organize it and describe it. Hmm. Very interesting. Um, I, I guess what I took from your book, and I think everybody's going to take something different from your book, there is so much information, and even along with your main thesis in the book, the main premise that you have, there are so many collateral paths that you elaborate on to support mm-hmm. each block of it, and each one of those are very, very interesting and thought-provoking in their own way, independently, <laughs> uh, beyond their, their their support of your main thesis. But um, it seems to me that the, the real utility of of what this model would be, if, if people would indeed find it functional of use, is that it provides at least one way to understand how these three different, seemingly very different spheres interact with each other. Um, the, the the current thinking today really doesn't have any way to couple them together. In fact, uh, as, as you talk about in your book, usually one who's a specialist in one of these fields dismisses the others. Um, when your most open-minded people can recognize the purpose of all and, and presence of all three, but it's very hard to figure out a way to see how one actually influences the operations of the other. And I think that's where your model, um, you know, attempts to do that. Um, speaking of scientific models, um, can you give us a few examples, like the ones that are in your book, of how what we know as the scientific method of 
establishing hypotheses or proposing them, exper- you know, doing experimentation through theory. How often, it, for some of the big scientific issues that we have had in in uh, our societies, how they're often presented as truth and certainty. And, and I say that to contrast it to really the pure understanding of scientific theory, where where there has to be a long evolution, if you were, of the veracity of a hypothesis. In other words, there's a long path it has to go through of independent verification, testing, um, confirmation by others, and on and on. Uh, but in real, in the real world, and in, particularly when things get politicized and other things, things are very, very different. So can you give us some examples of how this process uh, where people are just very dimly looking at a phenomena suddenly becomes the accepted belief and any other alternative views are quickly dismissed? Well, yes. I think there's a, there's a number of dimensions to the question that you're asking. Uh, the first one, and I think the most prevalent one that we run into, is when theory is presented as fact. And uh, we have two different aspects of, of science. Uh, other than the scientific method, what we have is we have observations, and then we have theories as to how to explain those particular observations. Um, say, for example, uh, we have uh, the understanding of the uh, construction of the atom with the nucleus, protons, neutrons, electrons. And uh, we've classically considered this to be like a uh, miniature solar system uh, in the way that it's conveyed. The actuality of it is that we're still not 100% sure the exact meaning of everything we observe on the atomic level. But yet, in school, uh, it generally is presented to students as this is a miniature solar system, which, mm-hmm. in fact, it isn't. Right. Uh, another example is gravity, where it is presented uh, to the public universally as one of the four fundamental forces of nature, which has an attractive quality to it. Uh, in actuality, the only thing we really know about gravity very well is gravitational effect. We still haven't cracked the code of what actually gravity is from a substantive point of view. What Mm -hmm. is it actually made of? We really don't know. And yet it's presented to the general public as absolute fact. Uh, Dark matter is another example where it's presented to the public like this is a foregone conclusion that when you actually take the time to study it, uh, you find out that uh, it is purely hypothetical, and the only thing that dark matter represents is a observation that we have, the cause of which is we're completely ignorant about. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's some aspects of evolution that fall into that, too. The other half of what you're asking about, Mike, has to do with the keepers of truth. And so... Many centuries ago, as you know, the Catholic Church uh, for Western civilization was the keeper of truth. And since that time of that unfortunate incident with Galileo, uh, the scientific community distanced themselves from the church. And as scientific discoveries uh, increasingly refuted the archaic view that the church uh, espoused about 
the physical universe, the scientific universe. The church itself actually withdrew uh, from their attempts to try to explain the universe scientifically from the Bible and reduced it to strictly a humanistic point of view. And science became the keepers of the truth. And so when science pronounced such a, such a thing to be so, uh, people uh, accept it, and it's often represented as absolute fact, when in fact a lot of it is just simply theory and conjecture. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, in sort of a strange way, I see both sides sometimes using the playbook of the other, um, where where the church may be speaking about things that they don't know anything about, and saying, trust me in this, and the scientific world also speaks of things that they don't know about, and they say, trust us in this as well, too. So for all their differences in their two paths, sometimes their techniques are, are very similar, uh, where even the institutions try to intimidate individuals who are asking honest questions itself. And, oh, my uh, gosh, yes. <laughs> Look what they did to Emanuel Velikovsky. The man who came up with the idea of cataclysmic evolution and continental drift. Yeah, they crucified that poor man. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then eventually it turned out that his idea about that was absolutely correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, our conviction here is if, uh, if you're on the right path to pursuing truth, you'll be led to the feet of Jesus. Yeah, because when he says he's the way, the truth, and the life, if you're genuinely pursuing truth in a, in a genuine fashion, you don't have to worry about veering away from him because it will, you'll be directed directly to him uh, if, if that occurs. Um, yes, Mike, I would uh, uh, say it's interesting you mention that because when I talked about uh, uh, basically uh, back in my early 20s where I made that pledge to myself that I would gladly surrender the rest of my life for that truth, uh, I didn't know at the time that, for me, that truth was Jesus Christ, mm-hmm. and that it took me a number of years to come to that conclusion. And so in a very unusual and very uncanny way, uh, and almost like a back, uh, you know, a roundabout way, I had actually given my life to Jesus Christ and had no idea what I was saying when I did it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, that kind of testimony is echoed probably with the wise men 2,000 years ago and a whole host of other people, uh, including the guest we had on last week. who had a very unique path. Uh, in fact, even took a second look away in his pursuit of truth and doubled back again in his pursuit of truth right back to the feet of Jesus again. And uh, the message being that God is not intimidated by those who generally seeking answers and are brave enough to look for them. And we should not intimidate our fellow uh, believers or others when they're when they're making those kind of searches themselves uh, because as long as uh, their heart is generally seeking truth in that matter then they're in good hands you know at that point um, the area of paranormal is probably the area that I know there's a lot of interest in our listenership to it but probably is one one that's leastly defined it, at least is in the structured sense as theologians or scientists do um, can you explain, just so we, we, we know we, we have a good basis on that third leg of our discussion, what really makes an event paranormal by your definition? My uh, attempt to gather all of this uh, body of observations that we have uh, in a consistent uh, single model uh, required me to 
take a look at how certain things were defined and then to try to redefine them in a way that made much more sense. Uh, paranormal is traditionally a word, a category, almost like a catch-all basket that everything uh, strange and unexplainable seems to be tossed into it. But for me, it's very specific. Uh, paranormal phenomenon to me is defined as any observated or, or observable effect, physical effect, that has no direct physical cause connected to it. And so, as one writer put it, which I love, uh, I can't remember uh, his name, but I love the way he put it. He said, it's like getting a black eye in Miami from a punch that's thrown in Cleveland. Mm -hmm. And so, when we look at these type of paranormal phenomena, particularly those that are uh, associated with hauntings, uh, we find that here we have the same uh, type of uh, phenomena taking place that we're seeing uh, uh, physical effects without any directly connected physical cause. Okay. Uh, now, when we give it that scientific explanation, we're able to begin to uh, bridge it with other disciplines. Uh, physics, for example, has an, a name already for that. It's called non-locality or uh, non-local causality. And so in that concept there, we've actually brought those observations more in line with uh, scientific thinking. Okay. Now, just so our listeners understand, as well as us here, uh, distinguish this definition of paranormal from the spiritual side. Because a lot of these things are things that we would consider miraculous kind of events we would, we would sort of look at in the spiritual. How do you distinguish those two aspects? Well, Mike, the way that uh, I've approached part of that, uh, as you well know from reading the book, is that I felt that as a researcher, uh, I had to make a distinction uh, between the effect and whatever intelligence might initiate that effect. Uh, for example, I compare it with a, uh, a police investigative unit that is going out to investigate a crime. Let's say someone was murdered with a gun. Well, we have a number of different teams uh, working on that. There's a criminologist. Criminologist wants to know about the criminal, about the perpetrator, uh, who it was, why they chose to do it this way, uh, why they chose that particular victim, that particular time. Uh, on and on, and then there's a forensics team that goes in and studies the actual physics of the crime scene itself, where the body was uh, found, uh, where the wounds were, what weapon was used, uh, what actually killed the victim, uh, so on and so forth. So one of the distinctions that was necessary to do is uh, is to separate the effect from the perpetrator. And uh, I think that... Mm -hmm. When we look at it that way, we're able to separate the spiritual considerations from the actual way in which the universe is physically put together. Okay. Uh, well, well, the reason why I ask this is that in your book, like even on the front page, it talks about merging science, the spiritual, and the supernatural, or I think you call it paranormal, and, and, and the way I, I took from it is that they were seen as almost like three independent legs, almost like we see the three dimensions. 
and, mm-hmm. and you distinguish them where where it sort of sounds like, and this is sort of the way I would have defined it if I just heard you correctly, is that what you would consider a paranormal event would be something very akin to a spiritual event, except it's not connected to an entity that may be giving you know meaning to it. Uh, it just may be an observation of something that's unexplained. A- am I hitting on this right? Are they are they really closely related in terms of the phenomena? And the question is just really what, the significance of it, or if it has some kind of cause we can find or origin. Well, I- yeah, I think that uh, uh, what you're what you're saying is 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 partially along the lines of what I talk about. Uh, I'll give you an example. Let's say we have a gun, and we hear the the uh, normal debate. Uh, one of the things is said is guns don't kill people; people kill people. Mm-hmm. Well, my approach is pretty much uh, according to those lines, and unfortunately, traditionally, we haven't looked at things that way. For example, when a gun is used to, to kill someone, it's considered a murder weapon. And in our perception, the actual nature of the gun changes as when it would be if we were using it for target practice uh, or uh, something bizarre like uh, using a shotgun to clean concrete off the inside of a mixer. Uh, it's still the gun. The physics are still the same, but we tend to perceive it differently. And uh, if we were to use a gun, let's say, to pry something up by using the barrel as a lever, we would perceive the gun differently then. And I say that those perceptions, those kinds of perceptions, are a uh, sort of like a trap that we fall into mm-hmm. that uh, clouds our understanding of what's really yeah. going on in front of us. Um well, the point where I, well, the point where I bring this up is that, uh, and I don't want to make a big deal. We got a lot of stuff to cover here. Is mm-hmm. that uh, my understanding of this is, is it really doesn't look at all three of these as completely ind- independent phenomena or realities. But if I understand you correctly, I, I guess it's probably going to be a poor analogy. But paranormal phenomena that observed is almost like a wild animal or wild mustang out in the field. But if it's domesticated and someone is is cattle driving it in a certain direction for a purpose, then one might consider it spiritual because it it, it is a directed, intentional paranormal event. Therefore, they are still sort of related in a sense. They're not completely independent. It's just sort of the the way that, that they're perceived and made manifest. Yes, I understand what you're saying. Um, yes, and, and that's a good way of putting it, that the effect itself is not spiritual. Yeah. Uh, the considerations that we have with, uh, with matters that are spiritual have to do with the causality, mm-hmm. but not with the effect. So example, uh, for an example, when we see something that's a supernatural effect, so to speak, let's say like the miracles in the Bible, mm-hmm. we actually have two aspects of that. We have the actual physical effect itself, mm-hmm. and then we have the spiritual meaning behind it. Mm-hmm. One of the things that has kept these walls between all these disciplines is that the meaning behind the effect has always been linked so firmly to the effect itself so that the two merge into one picture. Yeah. And in that case, the 
understanding of reality changes according to one's own spiritual inclinations. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, like if, if one doesn't like what what another says of the spiritual significance of it, they may also dismiss the whole phenomena itself. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so an example I give, Mike, is uh, Pharaoh's court from the Bible, mm-hmm. where the Pharaoh's magicians turned their staffs into snakes. And Aaron's staff was turned into a snake as well. But uh, we know that these from our, from our faith have opposite spiritual connotations, but the actual physics by which a staff, a wooden staff, can be converted into living matter is spiritually neutral. That both, you know, both instances use the exact same way in which God put the universe together to allow an inanimate piece of matter to turn into a snake. And so when we begin to make those separations in our mind, then we can begin to break down these walls between these disciplines and come up with a single way of looking at something that stretches across all those fields. Okay, okay. Well, um, you know, this sort of leads into sort of my next question, and, and this may even just uh, veer a little bit out of the, the scope of your book, because your book has so much material, we don't need to veer far outside of it. But it leads a reader to, to ask some, some natural questions, thought-provoking questions. It, you come with a premise, and I think you've been basically saying that here for the last few minutes, about the importance of understanding, I guess you could call it the mechanism of the phenomena, in decoupling it from the not only the significance of the event, but the source of it. In other words, if there is a entity, personality, or whatever uh, that is the source of the phenomena and, and hence gives it meaning, uh, you put a big premium for the sake of your book uh, on understanding the mechanism over the source, um, and, and and possibly just for the premise of your your book and, and what you bite off. That's that's probably well advised. But but looking at the big picture for someone, and you know, and looking at life in general and and, and their significance of someone in it, um, do do you believe that in a more holistic sense that understanding the mechanism of phenomena is really more important in general than understanding the source of it? In a very broad sense, Mike, no. Um, for again, if I can be allowed to go back to my model. Yeah. about the police force. Uh, who would ever think that the criminology unit is any less important than the forensics team? Yeah. Uh, they are both absolutely fundamental. The problem that we've had, Mike, over the last or even thousands of years is that we've had 10,000 criminologists yeah. for every .25 forensics guys. Yeah. Right. And so everybody, you can go anywhere and, and find spiritual interpretations uh, from anyone. They're almost as numerous as the number of people in, in the earth. Uh, I mean, take a look at all the Christian denominations themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, everybody looks at something a little bit differently, and so there's a different denomination. Yeah. But... Uh, because of what I what I say is this, my value, my contribution to the community is to keep my feet in the forensics field. Mm-hmm. And so when you read my book, you might get the impression that I think that that's more important than the spiritual aspects. No, I have to overemphasize it because it has been so underemphasized. Yeah. I understand where you're coming from. I'm a scientist, so 
you don't really have to sell me on that aspect. And that's what's provided me sort of a unique way of looking at the Bible. And even like the guests that we have on Future Quake and things like that, is that I didn't come from a humanities emphasis of my educational upbringing, uh, although I have an interest in that area, but it's from a science aspect. And I think it influences even the way that you read the Bible the way you perceive it, if you've had a mathematical upbringing and training. And I'm not saying one is better or worse than the other. It just sort of changes uh, the way that you order information and put the pieces together for significance. So I could see where a lot of theologians would really have a beef with what you're saying because they're all about significance and they don't care much about the mechanism of how these events occurred. Um, but if I understand you correctly, they have a lot of differences and they will argue ad infinitum about whether this or that significance occurred of a thing that we could learn a lot more if we understood a little bit more about the mechanism. That if we understood more about the mechanism, we'd understand more about the order of things and hence the significance of it in the big picture might even become more clear to others. Yes, and of course the word itself says that, uh, and you'll have to forgive me, I don't remember the exact uh, wording, but the characteristics of God, his eternity, his deity, his magnificence, can be recognized through the things that are made. Mm-hmm. And so that is uh, what I talk about as physical observation. Those are the things that are made. Um but yes, uh, I think. And, and so you think that process, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but, but, so then you would say that process of really formally developing the process of looking the things that are made, uh, systematizing them, uh, taking more of a scientific approach is underdeveloped, even in the spiritual community, uh, and that they would actually glean additional benefits from doing that. Is that oh. the basics? Oh, yes, Mike, absolutely. I mean, uh, uh, there's two premises here. Uh, uh, given a rock, derive God. And given God, derive a rock. Uh, neither one, to me, from a physical point of view, uh, is fully adequate. Uh, both of them uh, are necessary. And if someone is studying the way in which the universe is put together, even if they're an atheist... We of faith understand that God put the universe together and put it together in an orderly fashion. All the fundamental founders of our modern science believed on some level that they were actually pursuing that order that God had created. So if there's only one order, knowing enough information about it, it has to lead us to, as, as, as Einstein said, if there are laws, eventually we have to find the lawgiver that's behind them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and if we find a single lawgiver, that that would explain why they think they have the expectation that one day uh, that they would find a unity of the laws themselves, because it would reflect the unity of the lawgiver. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and uh, you know uh, we run into this sometimes uh, uh, when we might be uh, as Christians, if we might be speaking to an individual that's not Christian, uh, that. Uh, we sometimes need to talk about things that are strictly scientific uh, to lead to that understanding that there's something there, um, rather than to, oh, too often we we use a circular discussion 
we talk about God in Christ, and then we constantly refer back to the Bible. Well, if somebody's not a believer, they don't accept that Bible as a source of, you know, credible information. But they do accept the nature of reality, the nature of the physical universe, as a credible source of information. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I, I, as our time's moving along, I want to take the next step out deep into the water, into an area that's going to be harder for our listeners and ourselves to to visualize, because we're going to go outside of space-time in our discussion, which is what we're used to all spending our time in. And uh, so we're going to talk about some ideas that you can't sketch on a piece of paper or draw a diagram of. But human beings, if they, if they stretch themselves, have an amazing capacity to imagine things even beyond what space-time provides them. Uh, we create, we have ideas, we have things like this. Now, often some of these things are uh, eventually reproduced in space-time, but there are some things that are concepts like freedom, uh, like other things that, that uh, concepts that we know that you really can't put in space-time, but they're still real nevertheless. So um, we have that capacity more than we give ourselves credit for. And that's what leads us to an area that you introduce is called the superphysical world, which is a world that exists beyond the mere space-time that we, we can measure and sometimes feel confined within. Uh, can you explain a little bit to give our listeners a little feel about what this superphysical world is? And I'd like to know, for example, things like matter and energy. Can they pass through the threshold in one direction or the other between what we know as the physical universe and this superphysical? Are they conserved in the whole system? Uh, tell us a little bit more about the details of it, as best as you can visualize. Okay. Uh, and as you know, I have... Um Lots of different diagrams in my book that mm-hmm. reflect different aspects of this super physical or what I call super geometry, the super geometric realm, uh, which are very difficult to try to verbalize over right. the phone. Well, but, and, uh, and you're even yeah. limited on a piece of paper in doing it, and I know the phone's even more difficult, uh, so we all have to use a little bit of imagination, but just give us a little bit of information to let people know where you're coming from with this. Well, uh, here's a very good example of the idea between uh, 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 spiritual thinking and scientific thinking. So when we talk about this super geometric or super physical realm that lies outside the physical, <coughs> excuse me, from a uh, scientific perspective, how we would uh, uh, begin to understand it or to even consider it is this. Uh, science has always taken a purely materialistic view of the universe. In other words, every physical observation that we can determine in the universe must have a direct physical or material cause so that the universe then becomes what we would call self-explanatory. Mm-hmm. It completely explains itself within the confines of its own boundaries. However, in recent decades, we've advanced enough in our sciences where we are more and more beginning to uh, acquire these scientific observations, these scientific effects, for which we have no material cause. We've literally, from a scientific point of view, we have literally run out of material, physical material, to explain all the material effects that we see. So, consequently, this in itself implies that a 
world or a realm outside of the physical exists that's providing the input that allows us to see these material effects that have no material cause. Um, paranormal phenomena is certainly one of them. Miracles is another type of an aspect to that. Uh, there's a number of dimensions in quantum physics or a number of phenomena in quantum physics where we see a physical effect with no physical cause. Um, the idea of dark matter is created to explain why there's 90% more gravity in the universe that we can now observe than there is physical matter adjacent to it to cause it. It's sort of a big fudge factor, is it not, that really reveals the limits of their understanding? Well, yeah, it's it's a kind of a... a it, it base, it's based under an assumption from a physicist's point of view, and not all physicists look at it this way, but it's the predominant undercurrent that flows through the field, that everything must have a physical cause. So right. if you can't find the physical cause, you have to make one up. Yeah. And so this is where, yeah. like you're saying, the fudge factor would come in, and, you know, they're kind of winking at each other at the table and, you know, playing footsies under the table, but what they're presenting to the public is, hey, this is exactly the way it is. The world is completely material, but behind the scenes, they know that it's not. They don't have those answers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, having come from the science field in the area of scientific grants as well, a government-funded research, I have personally seen that if you can't give the answers, and particularly sometimes the answers that meet political agendas, Money dries up, grants dries up, and people get laid off. You just put global warming in there somewhere. And, and so, well, yeah, there's a whole host of things. Wherever you fall on that issue or anything else, it's just the pragmatism and reality enters even the sacred halls of, of science and academia. I know that's not a surprise to all our listeners, but it's even worse than what some of us think. And that doesn't mean there's a lot of really good, honest scientists out there that are honest brokers. It's just they have to paddle upstream in it. Let, let me see if I understand this a little bit in my very, very primitive understanding, uh, Tom. Um, the superphysical world that, that you propose is basically just as real as the physical world we're in. It just doesn't have mass and dimensions. Yeah, now, correct. I yeah, can't... Correct. I can't and have a hard time visualizing something that doesn't have mass and dimensions, except for maybe energy. But um, the fact that I said it means, in effect, probably it can exist. Um, and, and, and I'll give you a case in point, a practical one for our listeners. Electrical engineers often work in what's called imaginary space. And it's based upon a really simple mathematical idea it assumes that there is a square root of negative 1. So it assumes something that is absolutely forbidden in mathematics, that that cannot exist. But somebody says, what if? And from that what if, they develop an entire alternate world. And that alternate world, even though the the mathematician at beginning one says, nope, that breaks fundamental law, they can't exist, they design almost all of the electronics, uh, any kind of electromagnetic kind of machines and things that we use are used based upon the reliable reliability of their ability to understand that imaginary world. They created their own set of mathematics of it and on and on and on. So I know that's not a perfect correlation, but it's something just to give our listeners the fact that 
these things do have a little bit of a precedent. Uh, and so, am I am I getting a little closer that there, that there, that there's an order, there's a structure that's just as real as what we might do when we write our physical formulas. It's just missing a few things like this, or maybe it transcends it is the better way to put it. And, and once we get past that roadblock, there's all sorts of possibilities to our understanding that exist. Well, I think you're you're certainly talking about something that's on the right track. Uh, that mathematical uh, uh, quantity that you spoke of, that hypothetical, clearly it must represent something yeah. because the effect of using it uh, results in a mathematical framework which exactly corresponds to reality. But in order to arrive at that accurate representation of reality, we have to use a mathematical coordinate that lies outside of that mathematical reality. Mm -hmm. And so another good example was the uh, age-old, well, not age-old, I mean from the time of Einstein, uh, there was and has been an attempt to come up with a mathematical representation of what Einstein envisioned as the unified field, mm-hmm. that all matter and energy and all forces were in the very beginning of the universe compressed into one uniform field that then began to unfold and diversify as the universe expanded. Uh, Einstein was never able to reconcile the uh, problem of trying to express gravity mathematically through all four dimensions the three spatial and the one temporal. And that problem has exists till this day. Well, a fella came along back in the time of Einstein called Theodore Calusa. And what he tried was exactly what you're talking about in electrical engineering, Mike. Mm-hmm. He came up with a hypothetical extra-physical fifth coordinate that uh, was a dimensional coordinate, but wasn't really. It didn't exist as a dimension. It was just a mathematical representation. And using that, he ultimately was the only one who was able to balance Einstein's equations. So he worked his math, and then he Hmm. extracted that coordinate out, and he came up with the mathematical expression of gravity through all four dimensions. And Belusa, of course, ultimately came to conclude that the source of gravity itself existed superphysically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll let our listeners chew on that. I, I want to bring up another example you have in your book, and, and I know you were hesitant to talk about this, but I still found it a little bit useful to consider. And so we may be limited again by the communication type we have here, but you use a bar magnet correlation to explain what we would consider paranormal type events, that we cannot observe a direct cause and effect. Uh, and the example you use is what can happen to iron filings that are on a piece of paper when you move a, an, a magnet underneath it or multiple magnets or things like this, where the classification, and we didn't go through an exhaustive classification like you do in your book here, where you actually classify different kind of paranormal events that come up in popular discussion into more discrete scientific classes of bilocation, where things can be in more than one location at once, where things actually migrate from one location to the next, where things sort of vary in their degree of materialness, uh, almost like when in graphic art when you make things transparent, where you can make things almost materially 
partially transparent. And people have observed these things, and you try to classify this. But but each of those different kind of events, you try to explain in a correlation of this bar magnet, where the piece of paper basically functions as the threshold between the physical world and the superphysical world. The bar magnet is some kind of force uh, working through a field structure that you cannot see through the piece of paper, but you see the results in the physical world and what happens to the iron filings. Is that sort of a snapshot of what you were attempting to do with those descriptions to show that you could cause things to move away from each other or form patterns or have one side influence another because there is a there's a field and a force that's you cannot see beyond the threshold, but it's still real nevertheless? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that uh, uh, what we're talking about is, is uh, this is a model that helps us, as I said, conceptualize something which is by its nature almost impossible for us to conceptualize mm-hmm. because it lies outside of the realm where our four-dimensional conceptualization skills actually function very well. But, yeah, uh, in a very broad sense, uh, what we're talking about, and and many people might have seen it, uh, it's a very old toy. Uh, It had a cardboard with a picture of a man's face on it, and there was a clear uh, bubble over that, and there were iron filings in it. And you would use the magnet underneath to bring the iron filings to different places where it would create a beard, a mustache, eyebrows, all that type of thing. Uh, The idea, uh, which is a fundamental question still to physics in the universe, is how order arose out of disorder. Uh, That the early universe was a very disorderly state. And so this this kind of strange order with uh, uh, galaxies and, and... planets and life and and all of that arose out of this chaos. And so if we picture the iron filings just laying down in a pile on that card, uh, that's a good example of disorder. And when we we bring the magnet underneath of it, which we can't see from above the the card, suddenly these iron filings gather together, they stand up on end, they take a pattern, Suddenly, they get order to them from an unknown, invisible source. And so the way that our universe came into being is very much like this. Now, as far as explaining certain paranormal phenomena, I think that there's another model that might work very well for us. Uh, It's certainly more visual. Uh (laughs) Excuse me. And what I talk about, imagine a bowl of water that is filled completely to the top. And that that water represents these superphysical elements, let's say form and substance. Uh, and so, but we, and, and what we do then is that we take a, a membrane, a flexible membrane, let's say we have a sheet of rubber, but it's permeable. There's millions of little holes in it that we can't see that will allow the water to, uh, to pass through it. We'll stretch this membrane across this bowl, and that represents the fabric of space-time. Mm-hmm. And so when we look at that membrane by itself, we're looking at something featureless. There's no structures in it whatsoever. Uh, 
from a scientific point of view, we would say that that is in a state of disorder. There's no orderly structures in it. Mm -hmm. Now, we know that around every piece of uh, matter in the universe, uh, space-time is curved. There's a pocket of space-time which is actually bent, and the material is inside of it. So let's say we take our finger and we push down into that fabric of space-time to create a gravitational well or a gravitational pocket in it. The water rushes in to fill it up, and we, looking from over top of the bowl, suddenly see material where there wasn't any before. And that would be an example of materialization. Mm-hmm. We lift our, our uh, finger up, water disappears. We have a dematerialization. We mm-hmm. take two fingers, press them down in different places, and we have bilocation, and so on and so forth. And so one of my examples that I give is that if you think about putting 5,000 fingers into such a membrane to cause 5,000 identical manifestations of the one object in all different places at the same time, we begin to be able to get the conceptual model of the mechanics of how Jesus fed thousands of people with a handful of uh, loaves and fishes. Mm -hmm. So he, he, he tapped into an area where an infinite number of fishes and loaves are. Uh, in each no. of the places where the people are? He, what actually Or the substance that was, forms them. Yes, in my opinion, yeah. what we actually had was the same loaves and fishes in thousands of different geometric locations. Yeah. at the same coordinate in time. Mm. So mm. he didn't create anything. They were mm. all the same loaves and fishes. Yet a miracle nonetheless in the aspect that it was a manipulation of a creation beyond the realm of mere mortal man. That, to me, is a scientific definition of what miracle means. Um. You know, there's a simple experiment that you describe, and it's so deceptively simple that um, people maybe that aren't scientists can't appreciate it. it it's called a two-slit light experiment. And I know we have a lot to talk about here, but it, you make it a big deal in your book because this simple experiment is what seems to stump the world scientific community in, in admitting there is a phenomena that they don't have a clue on how to explain what it's doing. Can you give us a really quick experiment, or a description, excuse me, of this experiment that explains why scientists have to at least hint at non-physical worlds in their existence because of its results? Yes, uh, David Bohm, who was uh, one of the most prominent physicists of the 20th century, uh, said that the two-slit experiment, no physicist understands the two-slit experiment but it represents the only mystery and the entire mystery of quantum physics. And uh, essentially how the experiment goes is this. A beam of light is allowed to pass through two slits uh, in a board, and the beam that comes from that is displayed on a, discrete, on a screen beyond that. And the early experimenters of this, what they found was that these two slit these 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 beams created a an interference pattern a wave pattern 
um, on the screen beyond. This was still during the time when Newtonian physics was the model of the universe. Newton had said this space was absolutely empty. So they couldn't understand how waves could be created in empty space. It didn't make any sense. Essentially, from the Newtonian model that they were working with, they were actually throwing a stone in a pond that had no water in it. Mm-hmm. So how in the world could waves be propagated from throwing a stone in a pond with no water in it? Uh, and so one of the uh, one of the theories they had is was these beams interfered with each other and created a wave pattern. So the next step of the experiment, when they became advanced enough technologically, was to fire individual photons one at a time at these slits, and concluding or theorizing that which slit it would travel through was uh, random. It was just by chance. And so at the end of that, they assumed that they would see the kind of, uh, you know, type of a uniform fog or a field on the screen beyond that Newtonian physics would dictate. Well, strangely enough, uh, each, uh, each photon took its own place in the pattern so when the cumulative effect was measured, they still had a wave pattern. Mm-hmm. To understand how strange this is, I equate it with taking a bucket of sand, folks, holding it at arm at shoulder height, pouring it out to the ground, and having that sand form an image of the Eiffel Tower as it falls to the ground. That's how bizarre it is. Mm-hmm. So uh, quantum physicists have just accepted that this is a quality of the universe without uh, uh, providing an explanation, but Einstein didn't like this. This is where he uh, got the saying that he's often quoted. He said, quantum mechanics is impressive, but I don't believe God rolls dice. Mm-hmm. So there has been physicists, for example, David Bohm, uh, who came up with the concept of implicate order, which is this superphysical information which dictates what we see in the physical. And uh, Louis de Broglie, who had the, who came up with the concept of guide waves uh, that were extra physical and would dictate this Eiffel Tower being traced out by this sand being poured randomly at arm's length. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, so, you know, and you, you, you have several of uh, examples like this. And, and you know, a, a lot of us, We'll read in news stories and things over time. We'll find different anomalous results in the scientific world. We'll read and we'll, we'll maybe get a partial story, and then we forget about it, or we can't re- recollect the details. And one of the things I like about your book is that you organize these things. You actually condense them down to some – it's not exhaustive, but some con, uh, condensed examples of anomalies. Another one you give – uh, is the fact of, and, and you correct me if I'm saying this wrong, but if you have photons that are sent off in opposite directions, when something is done to modify, for example, the spin of a photon on one, you see that same effect on the other one, even though they're moving away what would be double the speed of light, which we have no model to explain how one could, the means to communicate to it or the speed by which it could in, influence that. And, and many other examples like this, it, it, isn't this right that, I mean, there are a number of examples you give of very well-known things that the scientists willingly shrug their shoulders and say, if there isn't something outside our current models, we can't do anything with this. 
Yeah, uh, science, modern science has a very convenient cop-out. Uh, and uh, in a sense, it's a cop-out, but they universally accept it within their fraternity, is that we don't have to explain why a thing works. All we have to do is determine how it works. And we're not obligated to, as long as we can perfectly describe how something works, we are not obligated to uh, explain or try to explain why it works that way. So in what you're talking about, uh, this is a very good example. It's called quantum entanglement. Uh, they could take a photon and through repeated efforts split it into two halves. Each half will represent a whole photon. It will actually function as a whole photon except on a lower energy level. And when they're split, they acquire opposite polarities. Not like a magnet, but the yeah. quantum polarity is like an upspin and a downspin. And so particle A will have an upspin, particle B will have a downspin, and they remain, t and that's the way they have a balance within what they call the correlated pair. They'll take those pair, uh, that pair, and split the two apart and get them traveling away from each other, being photons, uh, they would travel at the speed of light. Then particle A, for example, they'll pass through a polarizing filter that'll change its spin from an up to a downspin. Particle B, will automatically and instantaneously respond and reverse its own spin to maintain the balance in the correlated pair. The, the paranormal or the supernatural aspect of this is that this will happen even if those uh, particles are separated mm -hmm. by 500 light years. Mm -hmm. And so we wouldn't even be talking about twice the speed of light for the one uh, the information about particle A to reach particle B, we would talk be talking about many multiples of the speed of light. Mm -hmm. And so here we have physical evidence that there's a body of information, this specific information is about the state of particle A, that exists outside of space-time, exists separately from the physical observation, and can be transmitted instantaneously anywhere throughout the universe. So, so in other words, we have ample, well-established, reputable scientific data in our physical world that absolutely proves there has to be something beyond the physical world. Yes. In other words, there has to be something. There has to be an explanation for it. And, and understand, uh, folks, this is a very specific word. There has to be an extra physical cause within the physical plane itself from the speed of light and below there is no local causality to that effect so the mm -hmm. causality must lie outside of space and time well, well let me switch gears a little bit because your book as i mentioned earlier uh in in slowly building its case it, it has to go in some very diverse areas and it spends a good bit of time talking about spiritual matters and the bible and I find all of it fascinating, and they all have very profound implications and findings in their own merit beyond what they contribute to your overall thesis. And one of the areas you talk about in your book, just to give people a sampling of, is talking about uh, words and ideas that were used at the time that the Bible was written and were described in the Bible uh, have changed in the days that we now live and can give false impressions to us and maybe create a false obstacle to our ability to, to be thinking in the way that we're talking and to be able to correlate it with a Bible way of thinking. That, that sometimes our, our, our modern words have been part of the problem. Uh, can you give us a few examples of that from, from your book? 
Yes, Mike, and uh, when it comes to the words, what we have underlying is a common cultural perception, and those common cultural perceptions are what give rise to the words in our language. And so we oftentimes, in fact, I think almost everyone reads the Bible with our modern conventions, our, our modern conceptualisms, without trying to compensate for the reality that when those words were written thousands of years ago, that that common cultural uh, perception was very different. And an example I use is when uh, the ancients talk about emotional states. They always speak it in terms of spirits. You have a spirit of harmony, a spirit of unity, a spirit of sonship, uh, a spirit of, uh, of, of uh, friendship. And then on the other side, you have a spirit of hatred, a spirit of jealousy, uh, so on and so forth. And there's many examples. But we read that today and say, oh, yes, okay, we understand. That's an emotional state they're talking about. And that, Mike, is so very wrong because the ancients had no idea what we mean by, quote, unquote, emotional state. It's a psychological term that I think many of them would consider profane. Uh, to the ancients, these emotions were actually spiritual substances that conducted themselves through us almost like a radio receiving a signal from the beyond. So when it says that somebody has a spirit of divination or a spirit of, of jealousy or a spirit of harmony, whatever it is, what they're saying is literally true. Uh, from their perspective, and when you read across those words and take don't take it into account, uh, you know, you've just missed a whole bunch of stuff that the Bible's saying. Well, you're right. It gives new light when you think about the responsibility that we have in tuning our frequency to pick up those spirits. In other words, we cannot say we're completely absolved of a responsibility when we have a spirit of fear or spirit of anger or whatever that comes on us. Uh, we, we may have a role in turning the dial and letting those spirits manifest. Yeah, certainly from the ancients, from the, the biblical teaching behind this is if you conduct yourself in such a way, if you believe in a certain way, if you act in a certain way and if you think in a certain way, you're actually going to shape your insides into the proper way to have these, let's say, these bad spirits come through you. And so you have to modify the way that you walk through life and the way that you think and the way that you believe so you close yourself off to these bad things and open the shape of yourself inside for the shapes of those good things to come through you. You know, there was one example in your book where you were talking about where, where um, people approached Christ when they, when they had certain maladies and things like this where they would tell him to say, have mercy on me. And how we have a completely different understanding than what they would have understood at that time. Can you shed just a little light on that as one example? Oh, absolutely. And, Mike, you bring up a, a, a very good example that will, you know, needs to, to make every Bible reader stop and sit back for a minute and rethink uh, how they approach this sacred work. Um, <clears throat> it's always been interpreted that Jesus was a great healer. And so people... Uh, see those words where uh, someone who was afflicted came up to him and said, uh, Lord, have mercy on me. And it's always assumed that the person is asking, you know, please show compassion and heal me. But that's not what it was at all. 
It was believed in the ancient times, in that time, that all maladies, all sins, or, or, or all maladies, all afflictions, were the result of sin. You weren't born blind unless you or your parents sinned. And we know, if you can think back, you'll think of many references in the Bible that talk about this particular concept. So everything that these people had, their leprosy, their crippledness, their withered hand, their paralysis, were all a result to them of sins that either they committed or that their parents committed. So when they walked up to Jesus, they saw Jesus as the great prophet, uh, the Messiah. He was the representative of God on earth. And as a result, he had the authority of the Godhead, which means he himself sat on the seat of judgment. Uh, and so he could, he had the power from his anointment from God to forgive sin. And so obviously from their way of thinking, if the sin was forgiven, the malady would disappear. The sickness or the injury would disappear. So when they came up to Jesus and they said, Master, have mercy on me, they were asking for him through his divine authority to forgive sin. And then once he forgave the sin, it carried that divine authority, so the sin was truly forgiven. And then consequently, the, the ailment would be instantaneously healed once the sin was lifted. This is why he said in that one place where he was sitting uh, in the synagogue, yeah. he said, what's easier, to say a man's sins are forgiven or tell him pick up his pallet and walk? Right. And this was what he was trying to teach. But we read it today and miss it completely. We just right. we just he, don't get that. Yeah, yeah. That, this was when the man was let, was was brought down, I believe, on the mat, I believe. And he said to show you all that the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sins. And then he turned to the man to take up his bed and walk. And they connected the two together. Absolutely. And, and the first thing that Jesus did was forgave the sin. Mm-hmm. And so it was the implication that the healing was the consequence of that lifting of sin. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I got one more spiritual type question that leads into I wanting you to reveal the big model to us, okay? And then we okay. may have just some questions to clarify on that. Um, you, you use some terms that we're commonly familiar with, but you use them in the context of your big model. Can you explain your understanding uh, via your model of of common spiritual terms like the kingdom of heaven? Uh, what is spiritual? What is divine wisdom? The word of God? How how do these fit into your new theories? Yes, and again, Mike, it's a good point because in order for us to uh, actually unite these various disciplines and break down the walls between them, we have to acquire a common set of understanding, a common set of terminology that allows us to conceptually cross those bridges, so to speak. And what you're picking, what you're speaking of is one of them. So for example, we've been talking about a body of information that exists outside of space-time. And this has been called many things throughout the years. This, this particular concept is not new in itself. Uh, as I said, David Bohm called it implicate order. Philosophers have called it universal mind, cosmic consciousness, those type of things. In the Bible, uh, it's called by two different names. In the Old Testament, in the Judaic scriptures, it's called the wisdom of God. And in the New Testament, it's called the word of God. And it says specifically that all things were made through that word. 
So that there is that David Bohm's implicate order. There's no question about it. Uh, this relates directly to the spiritual understanding that what you mentioned earlier, that the seeking of truth must lead to Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ is the Word. And the Word has to embody the truth because the universe was only put together one way. Uh, another aspect of that as you talk about is the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. Uh, we uh, too often uh, think about that as heaven, as paradise, that we're going to go to the kingdom of heaven uh, when we die. But when you look at it very carefully and look at the scriptures, uh, Jesus is talking about a realm that exists outside the physical and that it could break into the physical and begin to change the way the physical is. Uh, when he talked to the man, I forget his name, uh, that was seeking the kingdom of heaven, mm-hmm. uh, he spoke to that man, and uh, obviously when it speaks about him seeking the kingdom of heaven, he wasn't seeking to kill himself. You know, he wasn't right. seeking how to die. Uh, and Jesus' prayer where he says, you know, uh, your kingdom, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is all the time in heaven. And he talks about the kingdom of God being breaking forth. And when he created his miracles, he said, so that you know that the kingdom of God has come in power. Mm-hmm. So uh, we find that this kingdom of heaven is a place outside of space-time that can encroach within our realm and change its very nature. When Pilate asked him if he's a king, Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. Hmm. So there's a couple of examples of what you're talking about, that when we take these terminologies and understand what they actually mean biblically, not the common understanding today, Mm -hmm. but the original understanding that's been largely lost, we see that it's very easy to make connections between this and other terminologies and concepts that have arisen from other fields. When you consider things in this manner, even if you do it through trial and error, and you just consider some different ways to conceptualize, you will find new ways to understand even simple beatitudes uh, that Jesus says and, and, and other kinds of teaching, if you consider it, because if you don't do that, you, you're relying on your predecessors who have pre-chewed some of this information, and, and many times they've oversimplified things, simply because of their inability to really grasp this kind of depth and maybe not even been privy to the kind of information that were available in the 20th century or 21st century uh, to help us to even conceptualize these kind of things. They were they were limited by the expansion of thought at that time, or the expansion of thought at that time was seen as being somewhat esoteric before science was able to verify some of these thoughts at the time. Um We've crescendoed now, and I'm sure we, to some extent, we may have lost some of our listeners, uh, as well as others, because of the, the gravity and the difficulty, even in the time that we have on this. And I'm just going to have to ask them to look, go read the book and draw their own conclusions, where you very methodically lay out your case and these things, and get them a little taste of the kind of areas. And, and I'll say, and I'll say that uh, in preparing for the show, you came to me like half a dozen times. You're like, man, this is a heavy book. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's 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 not like a Reader's Digest yeah. book that you just go uh, reading the doctor's office, you know, waiting for your appointment. Yeah. This is something for people who really want to be challenged and want to find the potential for special 
types of understanding that they might not might not grasp uh, before. But let's get on to your main model, where you describe a little bit about the superphysical world that that has a structure that we don't see, but in, influences our physical structure. It has a mechanism of creating something that then percolates into our world and creates form and substance. So, so can you, in as concisely as possible, uh, Tom, in under thirty describe, seconds, <laughs> yeah, describe some of these key it's elements. Twenty-five words or less. That's right. <laughs> describe some of these elements and why they're there, why you believe they do what they do. Well, I think uh, uh, what the best way to do it, uh, in the simplest form, uh, is to take a look at basically the triad of this theory. And the point that you were making earlier, Mike, about this book being very deep, um, you know, you've read the book. Every single chapter in this book could have at least one or more books written just on that individual chapter. But in order to make the case for the theory that I lay out, you have to put all that material together in one book so it reads continuously from the beginning to the end. And so that creates some of the complexity that people really have to stop and, and think about. Uh, but anyway, there's, there's three different aspects to this. The first is this body of information that exists outside of space-time, the order of which dictates the order that we see in the physical universe and the structures that we see and their interactions. It establishes those things. Uh, the second thing that we, uh, that, that is part of the theory has to do with the curvatures and the bending of space. And the third aspect is the mechanism by which that material or, or that information materializes within the curvatures of space. Mm-hmm. So if I was going to paraphrase the theory in a paragraph, that would be right there. Mm-hmm. So I'll give you an example about the bending of space. Uh, we talked a little bit about it before. Uh, every attempt to come up with a theory of everything uh, has always stumbled upon the same thing, and that's gravity. Every attempt to try to reconcile quantum mechanics with relativity has come to the same quandary, and that's gravity. Uh, every attempt to come up with a mathematical expression of the theory of everything or a unified field, comes up with the same objective or, or the same problem, gravity. Uh, when we tried to come up with a materialistic uh, definition of the universe, where everything is materialistically explained and caused, once again, we come up with the same devil, and that's gravity. Uh, because gravity to be a, a purely uh, materialistic uh, uh, manifestation is dependent on three hypothetical particles, the graviton, dark matter, and the Higgs boson. And none of them have been discovered. Some of them we've been looking for for decades and have never been able mm-hmm. to find them. So one of the things that's associated with gravity is the curvatures of space. And we understand now that we see about 90% more curvature in space than there is adjacent mass to explain it, which is another problem with gravity. So let's say, let's take the typical haunted house, for example. 
And some of you may have watched uh, shows on TV about paranormal investigations and all the different types of evidence that they find in co inside of these uh, haunted houses. And there really isn't any explanation for how these things occur. But if we were to take the bending of space and bring it inside of one of those haunted houses, we would find some interesting things. Uh, first of all, with the bending and the torquing of space and the material around it, one of the things that would be generated is an electromagnetic field. And so we see these investigators go in and see, oh, my goodness, here's these EMF mm -hmm. fields rising. Um, another thing that it would create uh, would be uh, an excitation of the molecules in the air against which this curving of space is pushing. And those electrons would jump up into their higher orbits from that excitation. And you know about this being electrical uh, background. And when those electrons drop back down, they would give off, under certain circumstances, both heat and light. And so we see these kinds of manifestations in these areas of haunted houses. Uh, there's a couple other aspects. If we take a look at the inside of such an expanding bubble, if it expanded fast enough, it would create both a material and a thermal vacuum. So one of the things that they feel in these areas of paranormal activity are cold spots. And so such an expanding well of gravity would indeed create a cold spot if it was happening quick enough, mm -hmm. uh, faster than the ambient uh, thermal energy could fill it in and maintain an equilibrium. The same is true with the material. It would create a vacuum that when the surrounding air would rush in, they would feel these mystery breezes that they talk about where they feel a breeze where all the windows and doors are closed. Another thing that it would create, well, what's associated with bending of space is gravitational fields. And so almost universally, uh, people that are in the presence of these activities talk about a feeling of heaviness. It's not 10 people mm -hmm. giving eight different words. It's 99 out of 100 people giving the exact same word, heaviness, which makes me conclude that they know exactly what they're saying. Well, according to this model of expanding space-time bubbles, uh, that feeling would be literally true, that they would, be, they would in, in experience an increase in the gravitational field and they would get a feeling of heaviness. Let me, let me uh, since, our, since our time is light here, and at the risk of, of confusing people more, let, let me uh -huh. jump right into an element of your model that some of the people who read your book may find very controversial, because I want you to comment on it, okay? okay. And maybe some people would do less than me. Um, uh, my, my very primitive headhunter's layman's interpretation of your model that you build to in your book. And I don't want to spoil it for people, but uh, maybe that will help them understand it if they give a heads up on it ahead of time, is that you, you, you try in a very simple way to model the, the, the super geometric world that produces our, our material world. And, and you, you, you try to take away the, the, the overt spiritual religious terminology that is going to differ a little bit by those who have different religious backgrounds, even amongst Christians. So, so you try to give it sort of generic kind of names, like a, a positive force attribute and then, then a negative type force. And, and one of the uh, uh, presuppositions that I think you make that, that people raise an eyebrow 
it is the essentialness of the negative attribution in the sense that it opposes or in a sense, sense works in, in a type in opposition to or contrast to the positive force and is what we in Christianity would often assume to be Satan, the work, the work of Satan. Uh, in that you, you show that his opposing force to the positive attributes of the positive force we associate with God is in a way essential to create the material world that we have. That the struggle between those forces creates an interaction that you call diffluence. And the fact that there is an attributable difference between them creates something that's discriminatory enough at the time that, that it can actually become discrete then in our material world. And it actually flows through some threshold. And, and you use a, a velocity picture of where something would actually... Uh, reach down to the speed of light and then suddenly uh, have the capability of taking on the form of matter and, and other attributes at that point. And then it would, it would sort of squeeze through a template of super geometry that exists that puts order to the substance. And then it becomes to the, the physical things that we see in, in our world, which would be atoms and molecules and other kind of things organized into discrete things that we see. Um, I'm sure that was really a, a bad way to, to say it, but but the but the premise of it is that this this negative opposing source, be it Satan or or whatever you call it, becomes essential then for the existence of our physical world and his resistance to the the positive attribute. Can you comment on that to some of our uh, readers, particularly when we're generally a, a Orthodox Christian argument, that that would one have an issue with putting a negative attribute, all our Satan or whatever you call it, on a par with a positive attribute, where it would even and, and you recognize in your work, you say it's a far more diminished force than the greater force, and you you don't put them on equal force with 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 God, but they're of a similar enough form that they, they can interact on a similar structure to create this diffluence that flows through the threshold. Can, can you explain that a little further and maybe assuage some concerns that some of our readers might have? Well, first I'd have to say, Mike, that my hat's off to you. I've, I've never been able to visualize such a, a good summation in the shortest amount of words as you just did. That's That was wonderful. But yes, uh, um, yes. First of all, let's go back to the idea of what I was talking about, about the forensics examiner yeah. and the criminologist. And criminologist is, is really not a great word, uh, but it's the best that, that I have for now. Let's talk about all the aspects, the spiritual aspects, the personage aspects of God and Satan. And uh, most of us are, especially Christians, we're very much familiar with all these aspects. Uh, of both of these uh, uh, beings. Um, but what if we were to take the forensics point of view and say, okay, let's just isolate a, uh, a very small portion that has to do with the physical evidence that we see, the physical observations about the creation itself. And so this is where uh, I've come up with the concept of positive absolute and negative absolute. I have just isolated just a specific portion, a tiny portion of what God is and what Satan is uh, to uh, discuss intelligently how that contributes to the creation. Now, let's picture God, for example. Let's take a look at God. 
God is almighty. He's all-knowing. He is all-seeing. He is infinite. He has no beginning or end. Within him, there is no variation. All these things are in the Word, in, in the Bible. Uh, there's no change, variance, or, or uh, uh, differences in him. So, let's say, uh, let's play uh, uh, imaginary game here and say, okay, let's, uh, let's say that this God wants to create a physical universe that has a beginning and an end, that has time, that has dimensions, that has differences in it, that's constantly in a state of change and flux, that is constantly in a state of turmoil and in a constant decay and corruption, which scientifically we call entropy. And uh, let's say his will is to create this kind of a, a world, a universe. Well, where is he going to put it? He can't put it with inside of himself because it's inconsistent with his nature. As the Bible says, corruption can have no part in incorruption, and flesh and blood cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. Mm -hmm. So what he had to do was create a realm outside of himself. Uh, and so we get the passages that teach us the spiritual truths in the Bible. As Paul said, while we are in these bodies, in this world, we are exiled from God. And that the kingdom of heaven is somewhere else other than embedded in the physical world. Uh, so that's one half of it. He had to create a place outside of himself. The other half of it is this. Where does he get dimension? How does he create the expressions of differences, like, say, spatial dimensions, is differences between mm -hmm. here and there, mm -hmm. or temporal dimensions, which are differences between then and now. The key word uh, being differences. If everything was all of the same substance and all the same type, there'd be no way to measure the difference. That would be correct, uh, Mike. There would be no creation, because there would be no dimensions which would define that creation. If there was no time, there would be no differences between events that mm -hmm. give rise to processes. First A happens, and B happens, and C happens, and D happens. Uh, to create the physical processes that are in our creation, in our universe, mm -hmm. everything would be a singularity. And so there would literally be no thing, as in nothing, mm -hmm. no thing within a similarity. Well, a similar way, a you, you, you see planets moving in different directions. And we use that by which to measure distance and time. So you could almost say that they were in conflict because anything within the Godhead we would see moving in the same direction. By their very nature, they move in the same direction. So things yeah. that are moving in varying directions are a sign that there's something of this type nature of difference that creates a way to characterize time and space. Yes. Uh, it... Uh you know, uh, if we are able to project upon our normal mental, uh, mortal, dimensional limitations, in God we would talk about nothing is moving. Everything is a continuous now, yeah. and everything is a continuous is. Yeah. But he decided to create a world, a universe that wasn't like that, that did have nows and did have, you know, between thens and nows and here's and there's. Mm -hmm. So all dimensions are essentially an expression of differences. Well, this was God's other issue. How was he going to create differences when in himself there is none? Mm -hmm. So in order to do that, he had to have an antithesis to himself, something that was opposite of him. 
so that when those two absolutes, positive and negative, actually come in collision with each other and conflict and battle with each other, suddenly now we have differences, we have stress, we have conflict. And those conflicts are expressed in what I call pre-dimensional waves, which is the difference you talk about uh, or that you mentioned from my book. Uh, when we look at the Bible, we see that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth and the earth was void and formless. It says in another place that God created the universe out of formless matter. And so this diffluence, this, this pre-dimensional vibrations, this stress, this conflict, gives rise to the physical dimensions. And then we have the information. We have uh, what we would call in the Bible the Word of God. And so that diffluence, that, that, not, that formless substance, is actually almost if you could picture something going through a cookie cutter mm-hmm. and where that word of God shapes every single thing out of that pre-material form. And then it decelerates from its decreasing, increasing conflict and ultimately reaches the speed of light and below and it begins to unfold and materialize in the space and time. Uh, but yes, that opposite opposing adversary is absolutely essential for physical existence. When we look at the scriptures, we find Satan constantly associated with the physical world. In fact, so much so, especially with Paul, that he understood Satan as being almost like an integral component of the physical world. It, it, as I understand that, then, if this is the case, if, if what becomes the material substance through the superstructure or the super pattern of the Word of God becomes our physical universe. Since this diffluence has some kind of attribute or uh, composition of both forces, God and Satan, in it, then I would assume that the element of free will and choice come through that veil as well, too. Since well, these opposing forces make themselves manifest in our universe, well, we would if we're if we're talking about a Christian perspective, and I think that's probably the most expedient way to put it, that we are made in the image of the Creator, and we could argue about different aspects yeah. of what that image is. But there's two aspects of God which are unquestionably in us, and one of them is the ability to create to actually take invisible information and convert it to its physical equivalent in the visible world. And the other aspect of it is free will. And so that free will is intricate within us. It is actually an echo of the nature of God that is manifested within us. So, yes, that would maintain itself in us from the superphysical to the physical for the very fundamental force and the very fundamental order that is creating everything that is physical by its very nature has free will. Mm-hmm. And that can't be filtered out. And it's manifested in us as human beings. Could you also say, then, that in the Genesis story, if your theory was correct, that the tree of knowledge and good and evil and the tree of life would in fact be archetypes of the composition of this diffluence that made the creation of Eden? 
Uh, there are certainly aspects of it, yes. Uh, and you know from uh, uh, speaking with me via email that I believe that the Garden of Eden and the symbols that are presented in it are very much like the symbols that are prevented or presented in apocalyptic prophecy, like in Revelation, that there are clear and concise and real definitions and concepts uh, in it, but they're so deeply buried in the symbolism that we really have to start and look at it from that perspective to try to get to the underlying reality. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, yes, the tree of knowledge and the tree of life absolutely has correspondences to what we see in our observable universe. We have intelligence, because we're intelligent, mm-hmm. and we have life. And both of those things arose from an unintelligent and non-living universe, which means mm-hmm. intelligence and life had to come somewhere, mm-hmm. from somewhere, but outside you, of it. You know, we, we, we often associate the tree of life with uh, a gift of God, and we know Satan used the tree of knowledge and good and evil for his purposes, and Christians have debated for millennia, why did he put that tree of knowledge and good and evil in the garden? What was the purpose of it? And, and it seems one answer that your model, if it were true, could answer, is that for it to be a creation, for there to be a garden, there had to be both of them. And that uh, it was a, a key essential part of having the physical garden that, that uh, humanity was present in. Uh, amen. Amen to that. And uh, Mike, uh, from a spiritual, from a Christian perspective, I believe that my model, for the first time in the history of Christianity, gives us a tangible and believable and sensible and rational answer for the idea of uh, if God is God, why did he allow this evil in the world? Or like mm-hmm. the title of the book yeah. was published a number of years ago, Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People? Because the alternative is no life and non-existence. Mm-hmm. So, well, uh, it's, it's intriguing, uh, Tom. The details that you put in your book, uh, and many of which we've not talked about here, about the nature of Satan and his purpose and his creation and these kind of things, are almost verbatim to a guest that we had literally weeks ago on our show. Uh, he did not get into all the metaphysics of, of what we've talked about, but a gentleman named David Lowe, who has a new book called Deconstructing Lucifer. The, the passages that you refer to in the Bible, a lot of your theories are virtually word for word. So I, I want to mention that to you if you've not heard that show or gotten his book. Uh, you may have someone thinking, maybe not at the same depth, but in the, along the same lines on this one particular topic. And, and our audience really wrestled with that, some of the ramifications of what he said, including us. But it really got our wheels turning uh, on this kind of thing. And um, to wrap this up, I know our time's gone by so quickly, but it always does. Um, what new kind of capabilities that, that are good and useful do you think harnessing this reality proposed in your model could one day provide us? Well, the, uh, the result of all this is that we have a model of the universe where anything that the human brain can conceive in an orderly and coherent, coherent way can be made a reality. That's number one. 
The second thing is that uh, all of the problems, uh, physical problems that we have in the universe and with ourselves personally, uh, things like energy, feeding people, healing the sick. Uh, Jesus, particularly in the latter, uh, demonstrated that these things are possible, that they're built into the actual order of creation itself, so that when we are able to understand these principles and perhaps even build technology based upon them, we will be able to elevate ourselves uh, to a much closer state of perfection in healing, in, in feeding the hungry, uh, in, in all these aspects, uh, by being able to apply these principles that are laid out into this model. Well, and I would just caution our listeners, too, this gets back to our discussion we've had earlier in this interview about meaning and purpose and origin in addition to mechanism. Uh, and you had mentioned the story about uh, Moses and the sorcerers in Pharaoh's court, and they both threw down their staffs and created snakes. And whether they used the same mechanism or not is, uh, we can't know for sure. But one thing we do know is that Moses threw down his stake because he was directed by God to do so. And he followed the particular directions of God. And, and the fruit of it was was that his snake swallowed up the other snakes. Uh, and there's a lot of capability that's shown in the Bible. And being a scientist myself and an engineer, my natural inclination is to want to exploit any new capability as soon as it's found, whether it's nuclear or, or any other kind of capability we would find. Um, but I have to recognize, based upon my Christian knowledge and teaching, that without understanding a proper, healthy way to use it, it can in turn be harmful to us as well as healthy. And so I think that's something we have to keep in perspective. Getting access to a new capability by mankind, unless it's done in a way that our, our Heavenly Father, who knows the constructive way to use it, if it's not done through his instructions, then they can sometimes be our own undoing uh, at times. And so that would be the, the warning I would give to our listeners. Um, if your model does reflect reality in whole or in part, or, or even if it's just a good, convenient model to be able to predict what happens between these areas fr from, from a working aspect uh, that we can use, how does it change the nature or significance of our lives uh, or our worldview? Well, I think that uh, ultimately, if we're going to be able to understand and um, actually apply, even in a technological way, uh, a model of reality which is reflected so strongly um, in the scriptures, in the Bible, uh, it has to open us up to the understanding uh, that there must be a God of this type of a nature that's described. Mm -hmm. And so I think that that would have an extremely unifying effect um, upon humanity. Uh, mm -hmm. But what you said uh, earlier, Mike, is also something that we have to be very, very cautious about. Look what happened when we unlocked the secrets of the atom, how to pull apart that fundamental part mm -hmm. of reality and uh, the power that it released. Jesus said two things. He said, yes, greater things will you be able to do now that I have come. 
But the other thing he says is that if you don't clean up your act, you'll wind up consuming one another. Yeah, yeah. And so we we have that moral obligation that anything of incredible power, uh, we will destroy ourselves if we don't manage it correctly. All right. And, and you know, nitroglycerin in the hands of a demolition expert can do a lot of constructive good. If you give it to a small child, um, a lot of harm is going to happen. Or, or even if you take your car in an area, and you can be an excellent driver, but if you don't have good headlights and you're driving in unknown territory, you're likely to hurt yourself and anyone else out there. And if if we begin surfing the super geometry, and it's an intriguing thought, you know, first of all, to be aware that this super geometry exists and to be able to have a thought model like that. Because uh, to be honest, Tom, I have, um, although I've struggled with some parts of your book uh, that that sort of touch on orthodoxy a little bit. Uh, on, on the other hand, a lot of your thoughts that you've had, I have gone back and reflected on Scripture and thought about a different way to look at how certain things really work in the heavenly kingdom and sort of a justification on why things work remotely and looking at topics like prayer as a, a God-approved way of working through the superstructure of oh, the supernatural and, 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 and why... A prayer that I can do on the East Coast can help somebody on the West Coast. And I may not fully understand the mechanism, but I can sort of help visualize a little bit that that prayer taken up to God sends me through that highway, a highway that I can't see, but it's real nevertheless. Uh, and because I don't understand that highway fully, I better be very, very careful how I access it. And I better take instruction from someone who's a good driving instructor on it. And so... And it also makes me take very seriously when people talk about sorcery, when they talk about uh, drug-induced pathways, activating their pineal gland, or doing whatever they might do to do things, is to take them very, very seriously, plus the things that they see. They may be mere hallucinations of the mind, but they may not be. And um, to, to recognize that this is just sobering territory, and also the fact that when one day, if, as we understand the, uh, the biblical record, that, that our salvation will be complete and we receive glorified bodies, that many things of this aspect we cannot exploit now, we can fully exploit. And we'll be doing the things like a resurrected Jesus did, walk through walls, suddenly appear and disappear, uh, where, where his resurrected bodies immediately had the capability uh, to be totally liberated from the constraints of this physical world. And uh, I find some of these things can actually be strengthening to one's faith. Uh, so I just mentioned that to our listeners. I highly recommend this book. If you really want to just wrestle with some things to challenge you, um, if there's some things you can't buy that get into the spiritual aspect of things, set that part aside or just mull over it a little bit more and move on to the things you find really useful. The, this book provided me some useful thoughts in unexpected areas. And um, in closing, uh, Tom, I just want to tell you thank you so much for being on our show. Yeah. And can you can you explain to our listeners how they can get your book and continue to follow your further research? I have a website uh, that has access to all this. There are related articles. Uh, my blog, of course, where I'll have the current events and where my uh, next uh, media appearances will be. And also all the links uh, to purchase the book. And that would be at www.cosmicveil, that's V-E-I-L, 
CosmicVeil.com. And uh, I might mention to you that uh, the book is also available at Amazon.com. However, Amazon takes 40% of our royalties. Uh, So if you buy it directly through our publisher's link, uh, it does everybody the most good. Uh, what if what if our listeners really just want to bless Amazon and make them richer rather instead of you, Tom? Would it be better to go through Amazon if they uh, they just feel convinced that they want to give extra money to them? Well, here here's the thing: that my book is actually printed, shipped, and billed from the exact same subsidiary of Amazon.com yeah. that the book that are listed on Amazon are. It's the exact same place. Really? The only difference is, is when you buy it through the Amazon link, they take 40% more. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Well, uh, I recommend CosmicVail.com myself. I think uh, uh, you'll find that a worthwhile stop. Uh, you had mentioned to me you've had a lot of good feedback from people who've really been intrigued. Any negative feedback? Any people who really were put off by the book? Any controversy started? The vast majority of people have actually been overwhelmed and almost floored. I've had uh, radio host after radio host tell me that in all the years that they have been in that field and of all the hundreds of people they've interviewed, they have never seen anything like this. Mm-hmm. Uh, the negative feedback is very rare, and it essentially comes from uh, the people who troll uh, these kinds of uh, uh, radio programs uh, or websites or those types of uh, outlets simply to be scoffers. Yeah. Uh, like we know, in any kind of Christian chat room, you're going to get the atheists to come in just to throw stones at Christians. Yeah. Those are really the only negative feedback that I've gotten so far. The, the book has just been hailed as something very revolutionary and remarkable and groundbreaking. Well, I'm looking forward to when you do your next one. I know this was pretty exhausting getting this one out. It only took, what, 15 or 20 years of research to do? Uh, closer to 30. 30. Okay. Well, you better hurry up and get started on that next one. You don't want to be too old. We'll expect to see it in September. For the. Oh, my. <laughs> I, w- I want to see some real experimental data on this. I want you to take some Polaroids and some super geometry. <laughs> We're we'll actually, <laughs> we actually have some work going on that. Uh, okay. I'm in talks right now with someone who is uh, talking about building some technological testing equipment that will actually test some of the very specific features of this theory. Well, good, good. I know the human brain has a lot part of it, and you make it a big part in your book to show uh, a lot of the proof of this is in the creative capability of the human brain and the ability to uh, make abstract into reality. And I want to offer myself as a subject because I did have my head examined with a phrenology machine at the Museum of Questionable Medical Devices. Uh, so I do have a map work of uh, at least my external skull, if that would be useful for experiments. But we, we really enjoyed having you on our show. We hope you had a pleasant experience here. Well, I'm very happy to be here, and thanks very much for having me. And uh uh, I hope someday maybe come back and do it again with you. Well, we'll be looking forward to that. Sweet. Maybe we'll meet you over in the super geometry side of things, a future quake. Uh, but uh, then, then we won't have time limitations then on that side. But uh, until then, we wish you the best. Godspeed, and we look forward to seeing you soon. Welcome back to Future Quake. I'm Dr. Future. And I'm Tom trying to make a tincture out of some differential fusion geometry.
stuff. Boy, you could say that again. Uh, we you guys, just, I'll, I'll say you guys lost me a little bit. I'm like, well, I, I lose myself most of the time. Um, we we just concluded our interview with Thomas Fusco, author of Behind the Cosmic Veil, talking about a new theory uniting the physical, spiritual, and paranormal. You know, he had a hard enough time trying to take some of these concepts and do drawings on paper, which I thought he did a reasonably good job of that. Uh-huh. It's even much harder in a one-dimensional, linear uh, medium like an audio discussion. He's got to make there. him a. He's got to make a pop-out book. I think the only thing would made harder is if we'd done it in Morse code. <laughs> that may have made a little bit harder communication. He's but gotta, well, I'll tell you, he's got to do it in a pop-out book, man. A, a pop-out book, yeah. yeah. Particularly if it pops out the super geometry. And yeah, that's what I mean. You're actually to pop out beyond space and time. But, yeah, I'll be sure to pass that on to Brother Tom and see what, yeah. what he thinks about that. Mm-hmm. It'll be interesting to get our listener comments on it, uh, particularly some of those who get the book. Uh, they may have all sorts of varying comments, but it's certainly a thought-provoking uh uh, book. Any ideas you had or thoughts on anything? I need a, I need a something. I need a, I need an owner's manual for that show. Okay. <laughs> well, the book is available. Turn you, to page one. You, you have the benefit that you, you've got a copy here. You can borrow if you need yeah. it. Um, our listeners have to get, get it from get his it. website. Yeah. Um, I would like to thank some other people who have helped us. Um, I'm not sure if I mentioned Gene from Kentucky uh, as a is a, a donator to Future Quake uh, uh, last week or not. But if not, I want to make sure he was acknowledged, as well as uh, Sister Ruth. Um, Brother Rich, uh, a.k.a. Nimrod, uh, continues to support us, as well Nimrod. as Rain, Rainy. Uh-huh, yeah. We're getting, we're getting support from Nimrod? Yeah, yeah, it's amazing, yeah. Next, uh, you never know, Melchizedek and Mephistopheles, and Azazel, maybe. Yeah. You, you never know. Um, but I want to thank you all for your help. And... Uh, by the way, um, we're getting low on our book, Frightening, How to Overcome Those Frightening Issues You'll Face a Century. I just did get a... We're also getting low on dark chocolate. On dark chocolate? Yeah. Oh, yeah that's, okay. That's not available in stores. Um, but I just got a new case of pandemonium books. Uh, so if anybody... We've got two books. I wanted to, to be able to tell uh, Layla and Brett that... Um, I was waiting on some padded envelopes in the post office so we can get it there to you safe. Should be here this week. We'll get the, your books out to you. But we've got more if anybody wants them. That's it on those announcements. Be sure and let us know about your T-shirts and other things interesting. Um, probably maybe next week we'll start to put something in place where people can start getting them. Mm. Uh, or in, shortly after yeah. that. Something. I was partial to a hoodie myself. But to did, a hoodie. Did okay. we just go down? What about a bib? I go with a bib. Yeah. Can we put like a big cl- big lobster on it? Sure, sure, sure. Big, uh, we could maybe make coveralls. Lobster of you know, it's like coming yeah. up out of the water. Yeah. An eight-headed lobster, maybe. Yeah. I was thinking maybe burkas, future quake burkas. <laughs> That's great. No one's checked that box yet, but future quake burka, or maybe a maybe even a future quake kilt. Why not? Could apply to apply for some Scottish right hood and sure. get our own grass skirts. panel. Grass skirts with the Future Quake logo, yeah, <laughs> whatever. Um, berets, you yeah, know, you and go. even even brought those out. But uh, let us the know. Little coconut tops. <laughs> yeah, for all the headhunters across yeah. the lagoon that listen you could to Future have like, Quake. You could have like your face on one and my uh-huh. face on the other. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure we'll get some good feedback on that one. Yeah. Um, any other announcements you have, bro? Oh, I mean, I could go on and on and on, but right now I'm okay. Well, I have an assignment for you, even though it sounds like your voice get is well. under the weather. Well, get well. Yeah, I guess get well. Yeah. But um, the other thing is get on your predictions. Oh, I've got a doozy. Next week, 
is the annual prediction show, our seventh annual Future Quake prediction show. And we have a star-studded lineup of guests, classic guests, um, uh, some of our fan favorites uh-huh. that will be back like normal for our prediction show. And so... Tom, you better get with it. I'm, I got my predictions. I'm going to review right now. I'm gonna, well, I don't want them right now. I want them. I want you, and I don't want you saying, "Oh, which one of these am I going to read?" Like your stories every week. I want you to have them all in a big line and just read them one after the other. Okay. Okay. I'll do it like it'll be like bullet points. I won't even put a motion into it. That's yeah, the like one. Blah 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 blah. One of the things we don't a want on this show is emotion to, to A or B. Blah, 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 blah. You know, Two. someone else who has no emotion is Merv, who can tell you how to contact us at FutureQuick. FutureQuick radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com, suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information. Email Dr. Future and Tom Bionic at drfuture at futurequake.com. That's D-R-F-U-T-U-R-E at futurequake.com. Tell us your name, city, and radio station or internet, and if we can use your name on air. Comments on the show's topics or guests, or suggestions for future show topics or guests, are most welcome. Dr. Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week during the radio broadcast. Okay. It's late. Let's get... We better get on home. It's late. We've Mm -hmm. been gone too long. Thank you so much for joining us, ladies and gentlemen. Um... This probably was a head-scratcher show, but when are they not? You're not telling me anything Uh, I don't know. Love being with you all, brothers and sisters. Certainly enjoy uh, life together, being experienced alongside all of you all. Thank you for uh, being friends to us and coming along and hearing us chat and our friends on the radio. Uh, Until next week, we hope your future is always bright. Have a good day. Bye. Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake.